Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to our final day two keynote. We have Larry Johnson here, and this is really delightful for me, and I know you're going to appreciate it. Uh, this note from Karen Cater, I think, says it all. Terrific support for Connected Educator Month from Karen and the Department of Education, uh, a project I have really embraced and, and love what's taking place here. If you haven't yet signed up for the newsletter, please do so. It doesn't take long, but you can uh, get information about all the activities that are going to occur over the course of the next month. Today is the second day of a three-day kickoff, but there's plenty more to come in August, so we hope that you'll uh, join us for the other activities. So to get us started uh, with Larry's keynote, I'm actually going to, at his request, show a short video, and uh, it describes the Horizon port report here. So I'm going to put that on and set the timer. And then when that's done, he will uh, address you directly. Hi, everybody. And I am just uh, as happy as I could be to be part of Connected Educators Month. It's a tremendous um, opportunity, I think, for all of us across the nation to really think about the important aspects of um, sharing and what that means to the enterprise that we're all a part of. So what I hope to do today is to stimulate a little thinking about that. Um, I'm not going to do it with video, however. I'm going to uh, do it with uh, slides. So I'm going to go ahead and advance those at this point. I put this in the chat a little earlier. You saw it in the video. Um, but this is the Twitter hashtag for the Horizon Project. And it is your doorway if you're interested to some of the things that you just saw uh, to what goes on all year round. The reality is, is that we work in uh, Horizon Research all the time. In fact, uh, right now as I speak, we're doing, we're just finishing up and getting ready to publish a, a, a Latin American report that's been all in Spanish. We're doing a Brazilian report that will be released in Portuguese. We're also doing a STEM-focused uh, report that will come out in September. And we're looking forward to doing a museum report in the fall, and then we'll do higher ed, and the cycle just kind of starts over again. So um, I uh, encourage you to, to keep up with that. And I see we have a question from Dirk, and I'm going to pick those up uh, as we go along. But I, I do see your question, and I do encourage everyone to put questions in, because I'm going to take those. But I want to get us to uh, uh, a certain point before we do that. So go ahead and capture your thoughts in the chat. And as we go forward, uh, we'll, we'll pick those up, and there will definitely be a, an extended Q&A at the end. I wanted to uh, point you to this news story. It's a, from back in January, because it sets up really what uh, we're talking about today. We've been doing the Horizon research now for 10 years. And uh, back in January, we convened uh, an amazing group of people that included uh, the distinguished Steve is uh, one of the participants, along with a great many people that you know, um, to come and be a part of the work uh, of thinking about how to approach the next 10 years. We brought together 100 thought leaders then from 20 countries all over, the, all over the globe and spent three days and identified a set of megatrends that you can um, find if you um, if you go online and download the communicator, we'll put that link in a minute. <coughs> and thank you, Gordon. <laughs> Very nice. And um, <coughs> Steve says you'll be tracking the question. Thank you. These are the top five megatrends. And when we say that, what we're looking for for trends that we knew were going to be long-lived. Trends that were likely to last easily for the next 10 years, the kinds of things that are big arcs of activity and drivers of all sorts of things, not just in education, but in the world literally as we know it. And what's interesting to me about this list is there's really only uh, reference to technology in a, in a kind of a passing way. It mentions the internet, it mentions the cloud and networks. Um, but really what it's about is the way that those things are changing. And so we're seeing really a massive shift that is starting to appear right now in the devices we use. And I think about this a lot. We used to talk about how nobody 
really anywhere in the world is working on the next generation keyboard. Um, the fact is, the keyboard and the mouse are going away. And in fact, um, with the new tablet devices and smartphones, it already has and has been replaced with a more natural user interface. Um, now, in that, the devices are also getting smaller, which means less storage, smaller batteries. But it doesn't matter because those things are increasingly out in the cloud. And uh, we get them whenever we want them over networks that, that in form and function are a lot like what's bringing the light to the room that you're in right now. Now, in that, there's some very interesting things going on related to openness because both of those um, trends, the way that the devices are getting smaller and the, the way that we're offloading our, our demands for storage um, are really related to a, a bit of a, of a conflict between openness and the need for privacy and protection. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. And the notion of openness itself has gotten all mixed up with all sorts of things. It's become as much about transparency, and I'm thinking about WikiLeaks and some of the things that have come out there, um, and easy access to data and information, and a right to have that information, and expectation. That's becoming less of a trend, and it's being expressed, um, we thought, <clears throat> in Austin as something that, that was more like a value. And then the world of work came out as number one, the fact that it's increasingly global and collaborative. And one person from um, a multinational company made a comment during the conversation about this and said, you know, we go to the world's best universities and look for the smartest, brightest kids that have done the best academically that we can find. And that's, that's how we hire people. But we fire people because they don't know how to collaborate. And I think that's what this whole notion of connection education is all about, is that increasingly in this world, it's becoming so complex. It's an imperative that we connect. Um, and we want to connect just not about work. But we expect to be able to work, learn, socialize, play whenever and wherever we want to. And we do it in ways that bring us together with other people that are completely new. I will, I've been fascinated by something I read just two days ago. And a, uh, a commentator in a news magazine made a, made a comment that when Obama was elected, there were no smartphones yet. And I don't think that's entirely true because he had a BlackBerry. But it wasn't a smartphone in the, in the way that we think of them today. Yes, it got email. Um, and yes, it, uh, well, basically it got email was what it did. And it sent texts and, and phones. But the way that, that our devices today run apps and, and do so much more is, is really kind of interesting. So that's all background. Because what I wanted to share with you today is that as the Horizon Project is turned in, um, we've been thinking a lot about what have, what have we learned over that time. Ten years for technology is a huge amount of time. When you think about ten years ago, no Facebook, no YouTube. Video was really hard to get on the web. And you had to put it up as uh, real media and Windows media and uh, and QuickTime, and every time you saw a video on the web, there were always at least three links, if not more, um, to, to get it up there. There were no social networks, at least not in the way that we think of them now. And even internet search was very different, because Google was really just a very small idea at the time. So 10 years ago was a long time ago. And as I began thinking about what I wanted to to say today, I, want, I actually have a very positive message, but I'm going to lay it out in a way that's a little provocative, because this is my main point writ large. And it's a caution, really, that as good as we are, as many things as we've accomplished, 
the inertia in our thinking leads us to building on the things we've already done. Of course it does. That's our experience. That's what we know. That's our knowledge base. But the world that we're building for is not going to be like that world. That world no longer exists. And I thought about, well, how can I put up a metaphor, you know? Well, this is not the world I'm talking about, really. But in a way, it kind of is. You know, this this represents a, sort of a, a Pollyannish almost picture of a point in time and, and a way that, that the U.S. in particular um, uh, kind of had a self-image uh, around this notion of adventure and and uh, and all that sort of stuff that that's quaint when you think about it today, but that world, the one that actually existed back then, and the one that is fancifully portrayed in this poster, um, couldn't be more different than the world that we live in today, and that's that's just what we want, you know. So that's that's kind of my point that we want to make good decisions. We um, we don't want to live in the clouds, and I guess I should I explain a little bit here. I'm a I'm a photographer uh, um, when I'm not actually uh, paying the rent, and um, and so I'm going to be using a lot of photographic metaphors in here. And this one was a picture that I took looking out the window um, on a recent trip, and it was gorgeous. I'm looking out the window, and I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be one of those really bumpy flights, and there's a a beautiful rainbow in between the clouds it was, it was really something. And, and when I think about technology, I also tend to think about the way that light works and how, how, it, um, how it affects us. So this is a picture that I took in Jackson Hole. It's an iconic location. It's called the Mormon Barn right outside of Jackson in the Teton National Park. And um, it's been photographed easily over a million times. And this is one of the many, many pictures I took of it when I was recently up there. Uh, and it's about 5.45 in the morning. You have to get up really early because what the, the point of the picture is is to capture the sun just as it comes down over the tops of the mountains. It's beautiful. It is gorgeous. You know. But let me show you this picture, which I took at exactly the same moment in exactly the same space, and all I did was turn around. And it's a very different picture. Okay, so we've got looking one way, bright, shiny, you know, really beautiful, and and you're filled with excitement, and 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 the other way, it kind of dark and shadowy, and not really really sure, you know, what what's going on there. And it's the same place in space and time with those two different vistas. And that's um, kind of what I want to illustrate today, that as, as we think about all the cool things that we want to do, well, that's the Mormon barn in the Grand Tetons. And what we want to make sure is that we touch the right bases and make sure that we make as good a decisions as we can, because the outcomes are really, really going to be important. They're going to be important for us. They're going to be important for the kids. They're going to be important for the future of society. And uh, and frankly, you know, we don't have unlimited budgets, so we have to to also make uh, as good of decisions as we can, not just on the basis of concept and practice, but also in terms of taking care of resources. So I'm going to point my lens now. This is a joke ad that. Some friends of mine put together, <laughs> and but I, I kind of like it. And so I'm going to point my lens now at uh, at a story that I want to tell you about my own family, and it goes through four generations. This is my mom uh, in the picture. She just turned 80 two days ago, and she is holding my granddaughter, and it's the moment that they met. It's a beautiful moment, and. And I got really lucky with the baby looking right at me and everything. But anyway, it's just sometimes you're just lucky. Four generations, and their lives are clearly connected. You can see it in the picture. You know, this is family. This runs deep. This is uh, a, a way of being connected that, in a work setting, we can only aspire to. You know, because 
we just don't have that natural connectedness that, that you do in families. At the same time, though, their lives couldn't be more different. My mom was a product of the Depression and World War II, and her life was defined by scarcity. And, and it really impacted every decision she made her entire life. My granddaughter is going to grow up in a world of relative abundance uh, is what it looks like, and certainly in terms of what kinds of tools she'll have access to, uh, she already has tremendous access to, to technology and, and, you know, it's just really walking. So, so let's take a little walk through, through this picture here. And I'm going to start with my dad. And this is my dad when he was in the prime of his youth. He was a soldier, career soldier. He was very proud of that. I'm proud of him for doing that as well. And he, he was passionate about technology. He loved technology. He devoted his career to it. Uh, it was a science for him in many ways. And the technology that he studied and learned was this one. This technology enabled the world to become a much smaller place. It enabled you to communicate with people in almost real time. It's a radio. And I remember when I was a kid, we would build these things all the time. And, and I remember I got to be the one that wound the wire on the coil on the left, and he got to be the one that got to do the soldering and that kind of stuff. But you know how the father and son projects are. But I, I remember the antenna book and, and, and everything about this particular radio, which is an AM FM radio, by the way, for those of you who don't know the technology. But this led for him to radar. Uh, it connected him to the space program. Radio was a technology that he knew deeply and understood fundamentally. And he felt pretty confident that almost anything that was cool and new tied back to the fundamentals that made radio work. And that was true with television. And so when the internet began coming along, and, and he was uh, trying to get a mental picture about it, he, and he knew I was involved with it a lot, he asked me, he says, now son, now the internet's kind of like radio, right? And it was a serious question, and I, I answered it seriously because, yeah, that's the way you answer my dad's questions. But it really illustrated my point today is that he needs to interpret the technologies of the future by running them through the paradigms that he knows in the past. And so this radio illustrates that. Now, the first point that I want to make about radio uh, is going to be this one because it relates to the theme of Connected Educator Month. Um, and I'm going to talk about just one arc of technology through my family, and that is the network. And the radio networks um, were astounding. You could you know, talk between New York and Paris in, in real time, and learning about radio was fun because you got to study the atmosphere, and it was easier to for radio waves to be transmitted around the world at night because uh, the, the ionization was just different and things like that. And I remember uh, uh, many stories from my youth, but one in particular was you know, the great fight when Muhammad Ali, who at the time was known as Cassius Clay, his first heavyweight fight. We lived in Africa, in, in Tripoli, Libya, and got up at like 3 a.m. to listen to this fight. It was a big deal that we could even do it, that we could hear the fight in real time. Can imagine how we felt, any of you who know uh, the history of that. That fight lasted um, about 34 seconds, and we got up at 3 a.m. to do it. But nonetheless, it was like we were there in Madison Square Garden. It was, it was fascinating. And that's the world that I grew up. So we're going to transition now to me, my part in the family arc. And as I started to grow up, this very much was was my youth. We had a, a TV in the living room and 
we'd all gather around it, and I remember the Beverly Hillbillies, and they came on Wednesday at 7 o'clock. I can still sing the song. Let me tell you all a story about a man named Jed. <laughs> you know, and I was there every week, and, and you know, we had these experiences that we shared as a nation, um, and it was really interesting. But as I began to be older uh, and in, into high school, we began to see a different conversation starting to happen. And Marshall McLuhan and others you know, um, began to critique television and the network. And, and they made comments that, that people that grew up with television from very young were fundamentally different. They were they didn't call them the millennial generation because it wasn't that period of time, but uh, but there definitely was worry about what would happen with people that spend so much time watching uh, a television and what sorts of brainwashing could a government or a society accomplish. And so there was definitely a period of time um, in the early 60s where people were really thinking deeply about how the network might change us. And I had some very profound experiences with, with that. And this is one of them. I'll never forget this moment. I was um, in the eighth grade. And it was um, the moment that Walter Cronkite, those of you who didn't grow up in the US may not know, but at the time, Walter Cronkite was the news, the most trusted newsman in America. We only had three choices, and only two of them really uh, were competitive. And Walter Cronkite was where he got the news. And someone had just handed him a note live during the newscast that John F. Kennedy um, had been killed in Dallas. Now, what happened at that moment um, was staggering to reflect on because the entire nation, indeed, really people all over the world, immediately became connected through this medium, this network, and shared three days of global grief um, over this event. It was extraordinary. And then we began to see it repeated over and over, not necessarily about grief, but the Chicago riots and um, the Democratic National Convention and and then the color images coming in from Vietnam uh, fundamentally did change this. McLuhan was right. And that was uh, kind of my formative years. And, and then it was time for me to actually go to college. And something happened to the network. It changed. It became something that didn't just involve um, pictures and sound but it also included computers. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't uh, think to connect the video to this. This is a video of the mother of all demos. And I was only going to play a, about 20 seconds of it anyway. But I'll, I'll describe what, what you would have seen, because it's a, a live demonstration. It's Doug Engelbart in the picture. And he demonstrated in this one video in 1968 the network, hyperlinking, um, video conferencing, the graphical user interface, and the mouse, and a, a handful of other things. Uh, so many amazing changes to the way that we think about being connected that we are still implementing most of them today. Alan uh, Kay said at the 40th anniversary of this event, what will Silicon Valley do when we run out of Doug Engelbart's ideas. Doug Engelbart pretty much defined how we think about computing and the network. And he did it in 1968. 1968. 44 years ago, he did it. And that's been the paradigm that we've been based on. He had another device. Um, besides his keyboard, but that basically the keyboard, the mouse, the point-and-click interface has been what we've all known uh, all the way through our growing up. And that notion of the network kind of changed from Marshall McLuhan's perspective 
to what Engelbart and his his crew uh, were were reflecting on was that the network would help us, and it did. It helped us to communicate. We got email. We got we could share files. Uh, we could solve big problems by marshalling computers all over the world to do things like the SETI project, and and all sorts of interesting things happened over that period of time. And that reflects my career, and I'm actually pretty proud of a lot of that work, except for the email part, and I, I really do apologize for that. It wasn't really, <laughs> didn't turn out like we thought. Uh, but let's move on to the next member of my family. This is my son, Alejandro. He's 27 years old. He's a teacher in Korea now. Followed the family, the family uh, work work style. And I was talking to him when I was reflecting on some of these ideas early on. I was talking about Doug Engelbart, and he said, no, it's just like every conversation I have with him. No, Dad, you got it wrong. The network doesn't help us. The network is us. When he said that, it almost knocked me out of my chair. It was so profound because it's really true. And I begin to think about just the last few years as we've really become empowered with, with multimedia in our phones and the ability to capture images and video and upload them to the world in real time to the point now that most video of breaking news is captured on devices like this. There's one missing in this picture. I need to redo the picture and make sure there's an Android and iPhone in there. But you know, the point is the same: is that these mobile devices are changing the way that we hear about news. It's not from Walter Cronkite. It's from any of us. Any of us could be the person that delivers that news. And in fact, we've seen it happen. I'm going to. I warn you, this next one is a little visceral, but I wanted to show it because it is visceral. This is the first photograph out of Haiti after the earthquake. This is not a photograph a journalist would take because it doesn't necessarily tell a story that a journalist might be working on. But what it does tell me is that the guy that took the picture probably looks just like the guy in the back of the truck. There's a connection here that makes this real in a way that it's unfiltered, it's uncurated, it's uncensored. So it is a little raw, but it's also very real. And then a couple of years ago, a young Tunisian feels compelled to immolate himself over government policies. And all of a sudden, the entire country rises up. And over in Egypt, a young man creates a web page called We Are All Khalid Saeed. And two weeks later, this is downtown Cairo. We're seeing connectedness at a scale that we've never seen before. We were all connected around Kennedy and around Chicago and around other big events, but it didn't move us to action like this new form of connectedness is doing. We're seeing it happen across generations. It doesn't really matter how old you are. There's a new study that just came out about teachers that points out that there is no relationship between teacher age or experience and their affinity for social networking. Which I thought, yay, finally we're there. You know? But think about a world where, where this happens. And so the network has gotten tied up with notions of freedom of speech, of thought, of religion, expression, assembly, freedom of choice, freedom of association. These are values that are increasingly expressed through the network. Through the network. And beyond that, the network is almost everywhere. Not the network that we expected, not the network of fiber optics and, and 
you know, fancy internet cabling. No, it's a network that's based on the mobile networks. And it is virtually anywhere you want to go. I had a friend ask me three years ago, um, she was going to Vietnam and, and so she wondered, now what's the cell phone coverage? You know, in Vietnam will I be able to use my phone? Well, first I thought, why would she ask me that question? <laughs> and then I realized, why wouldn't she? Because I think about this stuff all the time. But in fact, there was not one square meter of Vietnam where your phone wouldn't work. You know, it's a small country. They have it completely wired up. Um, and so let me kind of show you. These, these maps are just a little dated, but the point is still good. So if you want to get a picture of, of, of you know, how connected we are globally, Here's a good way to do it. This is a picture of the Earth at night. This is a famous picture that NASA did. Little dated. There's, you know, the lights are brighter. And, but generally, the population centers that it shows are basically in the same places. And so we see here not only where the people live, but this is a picture of the electric grid. This is where the electricity is. And let me show you this other map, which is coincidentally laid out with the same projection. And compare this map. This is a map of the 3G networks. Okay, So pick a spot. Pick uh, the, the Midwest in America or Europe. Or uh, my favorite is to look at uh, Australia. And I'm going to go back to the lights. Okay, Look at Australia. You can see where Perth and, and Melbourne and Sydney and, and uh, so forth on up to Brisbane. You can see where they all are. Um, you can see that Japan is really lit. Now this is interesting. If you look at where Korea is, just to the left of Japan, South Korea is completely lit up. But look right above it. North Korea is almost completely dark. Interesting sort of geopolitical statement there. Um, now when it comes to cell phones, North Korea is actually still pretty dark. But the rest of the world is, look at the cell phones in Australia. They extend far beyond the cities, far beyond the cities. The, the fact is, is that it is very easy to extend the cellular networks. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Sherry. You know, hopefully they can fix that. All it really takes is one of these, and you'd be in good shape. I saw this one in the middle of the desert in Qatar. Uh, it, it's an interesting little device. It's a cell phone tower on a trailer. And it has solar cells on the top to, to power it. It has a backup generator for, um, I think they have a rainy day once in a while there. Um, maybe not. But you drag this thing out in the middle of wherever you want. You set the tower up, flip the switch, and you just extended the network by 60 miles. 60 miles. A circle of 60 miles. Um, it's so easy to do that now uh, you don't hear about AT&T or Verizon having breakdowns when they have the big uh, conferences like Comic Con in San Diego or the you know the uh, Apple events that they hold in San Francisco anymore. And the reason is because the cell phone companies have a whole fleet of these kind of trucks that they bring in to um, to uh, to augment the network. And and yeah, the network is changing. So some people have 4G. It gets rolled out in the big cities, of course, before it's rolled out elsewhere. Um, but the network is expanding in ways that we've never seen before. The growth of it is incredible. And this is how 85% of the people in the world get on the Internet, is via a mobile network. Um, now, the world passed 6 billion active cell phone accounts last July. We're going to pass 7 billion active cell phones accounts uh, sooner than 2014. We're going to do it probably by the end of this year. There are 1.3 billion cell phones manufactured every single year. The pace of competition uh, and the, the, the rate of new features, is, it's unprecedented. There's nothing been like it. And all the phones in the world can get on the internet. Most of them, 96% have at least a basic web browser. 71% of all phones on the planet have a full HTML compliant browser. 
and virtually all of the new phones, um, the fastest growing segment, of course, is smartphones, which are you know, fully internet capable. So that's the world we live in. And we'll go to the final generation in my little story. And this is my granddaughter, Ava. And the way she looks at me all the time, basically, you know, what you got, Grandpa? You know, come on, show me how it's going to be. And her view of this is that the network is invisible. I'll call her up on the phone just to see how she's doing, like grandfathers do. And she'll say, Grandpa, FaceTime. And I'll mumble something. Oh, I'm not near a mobile hotspot. I can't do FaceTime here. She'll go, why not? <laughs> she doesn't have a concept of what the network is. It's not going to be meaningful to her. By the time that she is come of age, uh, she will have been making calls like this her whole life that she can remember in any case. Um, this is my grandson. And when he was one year old, I gave him an iPad to, uh, to play with um, just to see what he would do. And he's, you know, this kid couldn't even walk at the time I gave it to him, much less talk. And I put it in his hand and he beat on it like a kid would do exploring. But within about five minutes, maybe six, he figured it out. It was like a light bulb went off and he understood intuitively how to interact with the device. And now there's not one thing, he's two now, and there's not one thing that he can't do on my iPad. He can run every app. He can take a photograph. He can send that photograph to me in SMS. He can initiate a FaceTime call. And he still is learning to talk. It's just amazing how that is. That world for him is the world of when he was a baby. Imagine when he's 22 and two more decades have gone by. And two decades of planning, actually, when you're thinking about, look, we're going to build schools and we're going to you know, plan new districts, is not a huge long time frame. And so it kind of takes me back to where I started and the point that I hope that we'll explore in the questions in uh, just a minute or two. So, Steve, you might be collecting some that we can start with, and then as you have others um, put here, yeah, <laughs> everybody's got a story like that. So you see the internet meme, uh, you know, of the kid with the magazine, and the mag and the kid thinks the magazine's a broken iPad. It's trying to, you know, pinch the the pictures to make it zoom and uh, <laughs> and tapping it to get it to be interactive, and it's just a magazine, so it doesn't. Um, those are fundamentally kinds of different ways to think about technology. And you, you think about you know, what I've just been talking about, well, one technology, a network, the way that we connect, and layer these, these trends on top of them. And they begin to feel to me like there's some real important value here. And so we hope that you'll take these back to your, to your schools and your universities and such and you know make yourself ask yourself sometimes are we talking about radios again are we building the world that we need to build because we're smart enough to build it we've done so many amazing things but as we go to the next level have we seen are these new devices this new ubiquitousness in the network, this social media presence that can topple governments in days, how does that relate to the technologies that we know? What do we need to do with that? Is something that, that I encourage people to ask. And when they, they ask me how, they're going to go back to the basics. And I have a friend in India who runs the Agastya Foundation. And the mission of the Agastya Foundation is to make India a nation of curious people. To make India a nation of curious people. It's fascinating. And so he has designed these, these vans, trucks, you know, really just passenger vans, that are filled with 250 some hands-on science experiments 
that they take around to um, some of the poorest schools in the world. And this is one of them, which is uh, uh, a, an experiment where when you squeeze the, the bottle, it makes the liquid go up into the tube on the inside. Well, you know, that, that's not very exciting, but, but what kind of questions arise from that? What kind of curiosity can be sparked with technology even that simple? Amazes me because I've often thought about how long we as humans spent studying the flapping of wings before we learned to fly. We were convinced that if we just could really mimic the way that birds flap their wings, we'd lift off the ground and off we would go. But in fact, what made us learn to fly is the same principle this kid is demonstrating with this little plastic bottle. And that is the notion of differential pressure. And when we learn that if you could affect the pressure on a wing differentially, there would be lift. And it was only a couple of years after that before we were in the air. Um, and we've never looked back. So what are the, the most important things that we need to think about when we want to apply technology to the big questions we have, whether it's connecting us or helping people learn? I think what we need to understand are the archetypes, you know? Remember how it felt the first time you could hold electricity and, and manipulate it with your hands so you could see it? like this plasma device does. You know, that's, that's what we want to do, is we want to use what we know. We want to apply our experience. We need to do these things in ways that makes this happen. We want to make their mouths drop. We want them to be curious about the world they live in, because it is such an amazing place. and. And I applaud the Department of Education, Karen Cater and Steve and all the many people involved in, in Connected Educators Month because the reality is you're the group that's going to make this happen. You're the group that can do this. And I really, really do wish you well in that endeavor. And I'm going to be part of it as long as I can. So let's jump to questions, Steve, and, uh, and take it on hand. Okay. Do I get to ask one of my own? Sure. So uh, if the network is invisible, it seems as though the change, cultural changes, are inevitable. And those cultural changes will force us to rethink teaching and learning. So in some ways, are we kind of jumping in front of a parade and pretending that we're leading it, when in fact these changes are somewhat inevitable, whether or not we are pretending to be in front? That's an interesting, an interesting notion, and uh, that there is a dimension of that to it. Um, you know, um, I must, I must lead them for they're my followers. <laughs> Reminded of that cartoon, uh, you know. But the fact is, it isn't so much that our world is going to change um, as quickly as it should. I think that you're absolutely right. When we look at the world around us, mostly all we can do is react to that. Mostly, all we can do is sit there and go, oh my gosh, what's going on? The same way I felt in 1968 with the Democratic Convention. But the reality is, is that we are all engaged in planning and thinking and strategizing, you know, for how we can help schools to be more engaging, how we can help schools to be more effective, how we can help schools to be frankly, more fun places to be. And um, my, my main point on that is that the world is changing. It's going to change with or without us. But our, our opportunity is not to get out in front of the parade and, and pretend we're the leaders, but to actually marshal that energy that's taking place in the world and put it to the greater good of learning. Well, I'm not sure if it's greater good but put it to the good of learning. That's, that's where I think the leadership opportunity lies. Okay, so Durf asked the question early on. She wanted to know uh, something very specific. She, she 
uh, asked if learning analytics aren't closer than being mainstream in two to three years. Um, you know, it's interesting in the higher ed report, um, they were even further out. But in Australia, which is the most recent report that we've done um, and completed, learning analytics were in the near term. So I think that's what's happening, uh, Dirk, is that we're seeing this science around learning analytics developing way faster than, um, than we thought. And I think it varies a little bit by sector, and K-12 has a, a little greater challenges than higher ed does, um, and Australia has a little different system regarding high-stakes testing. And so I think, you know, it is reasonable that for K-12 right now it's it's at least two years away, but, but here's the good news is one of those years is half over, so, you know, it's not that far away. And people are already engaged and working at it in schools now that are building the models that the rest of us are going to be able to emulate. Um, so I agree with you. Larry, again, if you have a question for Larry, please put it in the chat or feel free to raise your hand and we'll give you the microphone. I'm interested in, uh, are you seeing uh, institutions or places where you feel like they're doing a really good job uh, taking a pedagogical look at the technology use and then driving that use based on good teaching and learning practices rather than letting the technology drive the, the discussion? Larry, did we lose you or did you turn your mic off? I'm sorry. Is it on now? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, so, sorry about that, I'm, I'm, I'm being affected by the technology. In the work that we do, in the research we do, we lead with the technology because one of the things that we want to contribute is uh, an understanding of what the technologies are. Um, and sometimes it can feel a little bit like the carts before the horse, but if all you talk about is technology in a room with 20 people, you're going to have 20 different opinions about what you're talking about. Whereas if you're talking about learning analytics, at least you've made the box small enough where everybody can have an opinion about learning analytics um, or uh, game-based learning or, you know, mobiles or what, what the topic is. So there is a role to be played that that is looking at what the technologies are. What is the list that that might be chosen from by someone who is looking at things pedagogically and is reaching for an arrow from that quiver. We want to make sure the arrows are well well defined and established. And one of the ways that you do that is by early on identifying projects um, where people are doing good things with it. And sometimes those are experiments, sometimes they're pedagogically driven, sometimes they're solving a genuine learning challenge that and need to be solved, and sometimes they're just joyful, and we like them all. Um, we do recognize, though, that ultimately to make things into the mainstream, uh, it's going to be the work of instructional designers and others that match the tools with the challenges, and we get that. And that's, we're not ever going to say that's not important. Yeah, I wasn't in any way trying to find fault with what you do, but more interested if there's somebody you can point to you feel like does a really good job connecting the technologies to good teaching practices. Well, we try and highlight those people in every report we write. And you can find a database of them in our app or in uh, the Navigator data set online, navigator.nmc.org. Um, we've got about 5,000 really interesting projects identified now. Um, and we add more every week. If you have one in the audience, we'd love to hear about it. Um, because sometimes what appears to be something that's really well conceptualized pedagogically uh, to one person is not that interesting to another. I think there's a little room for personal choice here. Um, and uh, so we cast a big net, but I, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, solid work going on in schools these days. I think that it's becoming um, uh, really, really fun to, to track. Uh, so I see a question from Gordon about PLNs. Um, and PLNs is a really good example of why it's important for there to be some definitional work done. 
um, because PLNs, um, for years I was resistant to write about them in the Horizon Report for a couple of reasons. One, there was really no agreement on what what they were, and number two, um, it was um, often a, an expression that people would use to uh, uh, describe something else. So there were, there, for a period of time, there were people for whom personal learning networks were all about e-portfolios, and PLN equals e-portfolio. Uh, and then there were people for whom PLNs were a future iteration of the learning management system, and those people are still around. What's interesting, though, is the way that PLNs, if you focus not on the network or not on the not on the N or the L, but you focus on the P in, in that, the personal thing, um, around new devices, uh, we're actually seeing people begin to assemble collections of apps and resources and tools um, that meet their personal learning goals, whether they're formal, informal, hobby, job-related, um, they're all there. Pull out your phone and look at it. You've probably built one already. Um, and so we've begun to distinguish and, and promote a vision of personal learning networks that really uh, focuses on the personal choices that people make to do that. Um, and we're willing to take the fire from people, but we think that um, there needs to be some clarity in that particular conversation. You mentioned, you know, some of the real-time aspects and other those. We're looking at those sorts of, of measures and tools under the uh, rubric of learning analytics. Um, and learning analytics could be applied, I suppose, if you're counting keystrokes and, you know, those sorts of things uh, to the kind of PLN I just described, but they certainly are already, I guarantee you Blackboard, for example, and all the other learning management systems folks are doing everything they can to try and figure out how to uh, to help develop this science and, and put it into real time. So uh, interesting interesting times in that. Oh, and the, the professional for the P is, uh, is an interesting notion on that, Gordon. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Okay, so we have a couple uh, so of minutes left. Maybe, maybe time for one more question. Feel free to raise your hand. That's the hand icon in the participant box, or you can put it in the chat. If I've missed the question, I apologize. I don't think I have. But if we did, just paste it back at the bottom of the chat, and we'll see it this time. Larry, it sounds like we might be done. OK. Well, I tell you what, I, I'm just really looking forward to the rest of the activities uh, for the month. I want to thank you, Steve, in particular, for the fantastic work that you've done with your team to organize uh, this first week, this kickoff week. It's uh, been fantastic so far. And uh, I think it's time to let everybody get back to the Olympics. Thanks, everybody, for being part of this. Thanks, Larry. I'm clapping for you. I hover, you have to hover over the little smiley face and then go down to the applause button. I know it's hard to find. But uh, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. It's always delightful to hear from you. Um, and thanks, everybody, for attending. Thank you, Steve. And thanks to all of you. Take care. Good night, Al. Thanks, everybody. I'm going to turn off the record button now. And then you'll notice that I need to bump you out of the room for the recording to process. Take care.